0: Welcome to the Joseph Carlson Show. Thanks for joining. On today's show, we'll be looking at the HEROES Act. This is the second wave of stimulus that everybody's been talking about, a lot more money, the direct deposits and all of that. I'm going to be talking about why this is not going to pass the Senate. Simply put, this bill, in its current version at least, is not going to pass. It passed the House with mostly Democrats. It's now moved to the Senate with mostly Republicans, and there's a lot of problems with the bill. So we'll be taking a look at that It's not going to pass in its current version, but what it might look like after Republicans argue for some changes. So we'll be checking that out. In other news, we have Spotify buying exclusive licensing rights to the Joe Rogan podcast. That means that Joe Rogan, who is extremely popular on YouTube and Apple podcasts and all of that, he is now having all of his video history, all of his YouTube content, everything moving exclusively to Spotify. So this caused a huge bump in Spotify stock, about 10%. I'm going to be talking about what I think this means for Spotify, what has happened when similar big content creators move to different platforms, and what I think of that overall. And then there's something I could almost make into a weekly segment because it happens so often. What I would call market timing regret. Pretty much examples of people trying to time the market over and over again, and regretting that choice of trying to time the market. I have an example for this week, so we'll be going over that as well. Now before jumping into those items, I want to do a quick portfolio update. Right now the value is 91000 about $680. So $91,700. It's trading right now. So the value is going up and down throughout the day. But I've pretty much recovered most of the damage done from the drop with the coronavirus. The portfolio dropped down quite a bit as the market went down like 33%. I was actually in the red at one point $16,000. So I went from plus $12,000 in the green before coronavirus to negative $16,000 in the red And here we are down 500 600 bucks. So I've closed in the gap quite a bit. And the dividends has helped do that. So my actual market gain is down $3,873. That is the capital gains. But the earned dividends is 3,279. The dividends I've been earning over the past two years have really helped absorb some of the losses throughout this downturn. But that's going to keep happening. As I look at the past week, I've earned $188. And that's in the past five days, I've earned $188 in dividends. And you can see also in the past five days, I've recovered a lot of my portfolio. So about $4,000 back there. Now, where it stands right now, I look at it and I think, well, I'm mostly flat right now. So what I need to do is position my portfolio for the future. That's what I've tried to do. I've adjusted the allocations. I've gone through and purchased companies that I think are going to be really strong throughout the future. I've tried to get rid of ones that I think are pretty weak throughout the future. So Uh, there's a link in the description of this video. You can click on it and click into any of these sectors and see what I'm doing with my portfolio. So I'll leave that in the description of the video. Now I also did, this week on Monday, I purchased $2,000 worth of companies. So here's my Monday morning trading, $2,000. I purchased $250 of eight different companies. I actually picked these for all different reasons. I think in terms of risk, what I'm doing is I'm not trying to target the most risky type of companies. So I've ruled out the, the group that I think is the highest risk highest reward you're talking about the cruise lines the the airlines those type of companies I've avoided those for the most part and I've also avoided the companies I think are the absolute most safe the ones that have little upside they're actually somewhat inflated in price because everybody's fled to the most safe companies what I've done is tried to target the companies that are somewhere in between where there's moderate upside but the downside I think is somewhat limited as well so these are the eight buys I did Dominion energy is one of them pretty boring company it It doesn't have too quickly rising of a dividend, but it has almost a 5% yield right now, which should be pretty safe. So that's a company I purchased $250 of. Main Street Capital, this is one of the more risky ones out of the bunch that I purchased. Uh, They have a really high yield, so they're trying to hang on to that. They usually have a special dividend, but what they're doing is saying, we're not going to pay our once a year special dividend. Instead, we're going to use that to help pay our standard monthly dividends. So that's Main Street Capital. It works similar to a bank. We have Avi that has a pretty high dividend yield right now. They're merging with Allergan. That's the acquisition going on right there. But I think this company has an okay future. It's been a little shaky. Mergers make people nervous. That's why the price has gone down a little bit. But I think they have an okay future merging with Allergan. So I purchased 250 of them. And then we have the two media company, telecom companies. Uh, They make a lot of their money from media. And the telecom side of the business is doing fine. Comcast is doing fine with its internet. AT&T is doing fine with its wireless business, but the issue comes in with their media properties. They have HBO, they have DirecTV, they have NBC and Universal. So these media properties rely on ad revenue. There's a lot of articles of of companies like Pepsi, Coca-Cola, pulling their ads from Comcast, from AT&T, and other similar businesses. So ad revenue is going to go down. My assumption is is that as the economy recovers, over the next couple quarters, ad revenue will return, it'll become really competitive again, and these two companies will be back on track again. And both of them, I think, have mostly safe dividends. And then we also have some REITs, Realty Income Corp, Well Tower, and LTC Properties. Realty Income Corp, I think, is in a decent position. They collected the majority of their rents throughout the downturn, and a lot of the companies that rent from them that are struggling, like movie theaters and gyms, I see partially opening back up soon. So I think even though their rent is delayed, they should be able to collect it and be made whole throughout the year and throughout next year. So I'm averaging into Realty Income Corp. And then Welltower and LTC Properties, these are the two nursing home facilities. Pretty much the same thesis. I think as the coronavirus becomes less and less of a threat, as we come up with ways to deal with it and treatments and better methods of dealing with it, I think that the premise of these two companies holds the same. We have aging population. I think they'll have continued demand in the future. So that's $2,000. Quite a bit of money spent this Monday morning. I put in this purchase, $2,000 of these different companies And I actually went through and added up what this adds to my monthly income. So at the current price that I bought these companies, the current yield that they were offering, I went through and added up what each one of them add to my monthly income and then added up the total. With this individual purchase of $2,000, I add $9.78 to my monthly income. So there's the the possibility that one of them cuts their dividend or lowers it. That would lower that $9.78 a bit. But there's also the likelihood that these companies continue to raise their dividends and they continue to grow in capital appreciation over the years. So that's what I'm doing here is essentially I'm purchasing cash flow. I'm using my income and I'm buying more income with my income. I'm saying I have $2,000 here. I had to work for this money. I'm going to buy these companies. And now I've given myself a raise of $9 and 78 cents a month. And that might not seem like a a lot because you have $9 and 78 cents a month. What can you really buy with that? You know, it pays for maybe one lunch, But when you start to look at the results of it over longer periods of time, in the past five days, I've earned $188 in dividends from my portfolio. Every single week, I'm trying to purchase more cash flow. I can't put $2,000 in a week. That's a lot of money. But I'm putting in as much money as I can. So the money that I get, I'm buying companies that I think will have sustainable dividends. I'm purchasing this cash flow. Over the months, this cash flow really starts to add up. That's the compounding effect. But if you want more in-depth explanations, if you want to discuss the different buys and sells that I do, I have a Discord where we discuss them in detail. So there's hundreds of active members, lots of discussions that go on, and it does help support the channel. So it's six bucks a month that helps support the channel. I have lots of videos get demonetized. You know, the the previous episode I did was demonetized because of that TikTok I showed. So that happens frequently. This helps support the channel so I don't have to rely on YouTube's algorithm and the crazy rules they have. But anyways, you can check that out if you're interested. No hard feelings if you're not. Okay, let's move on to some news. We have Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi introducing the HEROES Act, which is the second stimulus bill. That is why today House Democrats are introducing the HEROES Act named for our heroes, whose provisions are largely based on the four previous bipartisan bills we have passed. The HEROES Act focuses on three pillars, opening our economy safely and soon, honoring our heroes, and then putting much needed money into the pockets of the American people. Okay, that's great. We have a bill focused around opening up the economy, honoring our heroes, and putting money in the pockets of Americans. Now, that all sounds great, I don't know why Republicans would oppose such a bill. So it it turns out they are. They're opposing it quite a bit. Let's go ahead and take a look at why I think this bill really has no chance of passing. So first of all, let's look at how this bill made it out of the House. How did it get passed? It says the proposal, which passed 208 to 199, that's very narrow margins there, 208 to 199. It says 14 House Democrats, many of whom were elected in 2018 from swing districts, voted against it. One Republican, Representative Peter King of New York, voted in favor of the bill. So this is a heavily divisive bill split pretty much down party lines. The only people that voted against party lines was one Republican that's in New York and 14 House Democrats that have some exposure to Republicans. They live in swing districts. So this bill has very little support from Republicans, to put it lightly. Mitch McConnell said, quote, it's a parade of absurdities that can hardly be taken seriously. And he said that even though him and and President Trump have agreed that there probably needs to be a second bill, that, quote, it's not going to be a $3 trillion left-wing wish list like the Speaker is apparently going to try to jam down the throats of her majority. So that's Mitch McConnell's thoughts on it. We also have other Republicans like Steve Scalise. He's the House whip. He sent out an email to all the, the House GOP offices saying that, Pelosi is aimed at, quote, exploiting the COVID-19 public health crisis by attempting to force the inclusion of a socialist wish list of policies that have nothing to do with the public health and economic emergency. And this outlines really what is the main issue with the bill is that a lot of the, the provisions in it, a lot of the things in it, are things that Democrats have wanted that have far predated the coronavirus, far predated this current economic emergency. So you're talking about things like expanded union giveaways, Uh, Student loan forgiveness, lots of immigration provisions. These are all highly partisan things, things that Democrats really support, they have supported for a long time, and things that Republicans definitely oppose. So, just to give a couple examples of how partisan this bill is, we can look at a Vox article here that talks about immigrants. It says, Immigrants were largely overlooked in the U.S. coronavirus response. The latest relief bill aims to fix that. Now, this isn't talking about immigrants that come through the normal legal immigration services, this is talking about undocumented immigrants. It says that the cash payments to immigrants and their family, the bill would issue coronavirus stimulus checks to unauthorized immigrants and their families who are currently excluded from such relief under the CARES Act. They would become eligible for the first round of stimulus checks, which the government started sending out in April, as well as the proposed second round of checks, which would amount to up to $1,200 for each tax filer and each of their dependents depending on household income. So, not only would this bill be giving money to undocumented immigrants for the second wave of stimulus, but it would also retroactively make them eligible for the first round of stimulus. Now, obviously, this is something that Republicans in the Senate are heavily going to oppose. And it also has other provisions in it, like releasing low risk immigrants from ICE detention. It says the bill would require U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement to review all the files of detained immigrants and release all who aren't subject to mandatory detention and don't pose a risk to public safety or national security. So this is why I say I don't think this has a chance to pass. Giving money to undocumented immigrants, releasing immigrants from ICE detention, student loan forgiveness, having union payouts, all these type of things are things that Republicans heavily oppose. So when you see the videos, the, the content being created, talking about bills passing the, the House that's controlled by Democrats, you have to realize it has to go through a Republican-controlled Senate then it has to be signed by the president. So it has a long way to go. And these type of provisions are things that will hold this bill up from being passed. Republicans will oppose it. They will argue back and forth. They might come to an agreement, but they might not. There's actually a debate and a pretty big divide between Democrats and Republicans on the second round of stimulus of the fundamental way they want to address it. So Democrats are more in the camp of where they want more of the same version of the stimulus, just an expanded version of that. They want to give more direct payments to people and extend the amount of the stimulus unemployment, the $600 a week. Republicans are on the side where they want it to be more of an incentive to go back to work. So that's what their main focus is. So there's this big divide between the two. It points out here that Kevin Brady of Texas is favoring more targeted policies that would give employers incentives to put people back to work. He worries about the $600 a week. We pointed out that a lot of people are making more money staying home than they were working. So that's something of concern to him. We also have Mitch McConnell saying that the next bill must include a measure to shield companies from liability during the pandemic, which will also help businesses reopen more quickly. So he thinks a lot of businesses are concerned about liability issues. If you have any employee come in and they get sick for any reason with coronavirus, they might get sued out of business. So that's a huge worry for employers. They're trying to come up with some type of liability coverage for companies. So you can see the two different sides of this. The Democrats are wanting a more expanded version of the first bill. Republicans are largely wanting it to be more incentivized to go back to work. So there's, there's different sides to this. What it comes down to is they're going to argue about this. This isn't going to be passed in its current version. And I haven't seen much support from President Trump either. So he hasn't said, we strongly need a bill, figure it out really fast. He hasn't been putting that type of pressure on Republicans. So this gives Republicans a little bit more leeway to argue back and forth with Democrats in the Senate. Right now, we really don't know what's going to be passed. All I can say is it's not going to be the current version that was passed in the House. It's going to be completely different than that. Don't get your hopes up on these different provisions that have been included to stay in there. I think it's extremely unlikely. Okay, now moving subjects a bit. We hear that Joe Rogan is moving his entire podcast to Spotify Let me play a bit of the announcement here. Hello everybody, I have an announcement. The podcast is moving to Spotify. I signed a multi-year licensing agreement with Spotify that will start on September 1st. Starting on September 1st, the entire JRE library will be available on Spotify as well as all the other platforms. Then somewhere around the end of the year, it will become exclusive to Spotify, including the video version of the podcast. So there you have it. His entire podcast library on YouTube, every single video that he's ever done is going to be moved over exclusively to Spotify. And Spotify will allow video viewing on their platform. So Spotify is making a big push for this, obviously paying Joe Rogan to be exclusive on their program, but this is what's going on. He's not going to be on Apple Podcasts. He's not going to be on YouTube anymore. Uh, He'll still have a YouTube channel that will show clips, but those clips are just going to be advertisements. They're going to show little clips of the episode and then people will view those clips. They'll want to view the full episode, so they'll move over to Spotify. That's the idea behind it. Now, I'll say that Joe Rogan, his podcast is probably one of the most successful podcasts ever. It's a pioneer of podcasts. It's influential. It's iconic. It's trendsetting. It's at the cultural center of podcasting. So this is a really big deal. And you can see how this was received by investors. Spotify stock jumped up, Almost eleven percent since this announcement, so investors view this obviously as a huge win for Spotify. They're viewing it as a huge positive. I think so as well. I think it's fair to value it that way now, this obviously sends a clear message to Apple podcasts and YouTube. Spotify just stole one of their top downloaded top viewed podcasters. That's something that I think is is notable, something that YouTube and Apple should look at because Spotify is really presenting itself as a clear threat there, so we'll see how they react. They haven't really responded in any way. We'll see if they make any business changes, if they try to have exclusive uh, content creators as well, but we haven't seen anything so far. Now, this all lends itself to a bigger strategy. Spotify has been making a transition over the past couple years, Originally, Spotify was focused on music. It says here in the Sparren's article that Spotify has been buying podcasting production companies, spending more than $400 million in 2019. But most of those shows from companies like Gimlet, and for those of you who don't know what Gimlet is, it's like a high quality production company for podcasts, said, had remained available on rival platforms, including Apple. The company had previously described podcasting as an added benefit for listeners. That's where Spotify was on the issue a couple years back. Podcasting was just this added thing. Their main focus was music, but sure, we'll include podcast RSS feeds on our platform. Now they seem to have changed their tone to shifting from music to podcasting. They say, Spotify said earlier this year that it was, quote now seeing a clear indication that podcast usage is driving increased overall engagement and retention. And quote, our podcast users spend almost twice as much time on the platform and spend even more time listening to music, CEO Daniel Elk said. This is what they're seeing now, that podcast users are driving more retention, they're, they're listening longer, they're more engaged on it. This is something that they're wanting, and it seems as though Spotify has really tried to hone in on this. They want to be the premier podcast service. Now, to accomplish this, making Spotify to be this premier go-to podcasting service it's going to be very difficult and very expensive for Spotify. It, it's already very expensive. Buying Joe Rogan, they didn't disclose the amount, but it had to be somewhere well over a $100 million. So to get this type of influential person that has this many viewers on this many different platforms to go exclusively to your platform has to be a big payday. It's going to be expensive for Spotify to do this and to get the amount of people to migrate from one service over to another and then to convert into paying customers That's a really difficult thing to do. A lot of people, from what I've observed, seem very reluctant to move from one platform to another. A lot of people that enjoyed the Joe Rogan podcast on YouTube, they really don't seem too concerned to move over to Spotify if you browse through some of the comments. Now, I've seen even more evidence of this with the Twitch and Mixer drama. Now, if you're not familiar with this, twitch.tv is a website that you can go to to watch people play games, they can live stream games. They can run advertisements, and that way they make some money. The top streamers make a lot of money, so they get anywhere from like 50 to 100,000 current viewers at once, and they can run ads and, and sponsorships and make all sorts of money that way. But Twitch TV is by far the most popular website in gaming streaming, and this whole sphere is by far the biggest player. Microsoft made a competitor called Mixer. It functions almost identically. It's just a website you go to. You can also watch people stream. Well, Microsoft thought there's nobody on our platform, there's no viewers, there's really no big name streamers. The way that we can grow our platform is by buying some of the top streamers from Twitch. And that's exactly what they did. They bought the rights exclusively from two of the top streamers, one of them called Shroud and one of them called Ninja. And the outcome of this was a little bit different than some people predicted. Only 15% of US viewers who watch Shroud on Twitch in October also watch Shroud on Mixer. So he saw an 85% reduction in the amount of people that were willing to follow him from Twitch to Mixer. And also keep in mind, moving from Twitch to Mixer is literally just a URL. You're typing in a different URL. You don't have to have an account. You don't even have to have a free account. You can view his stream with no sign up. And 85% of people thought, you know, there's someone else they can watch. So I'm not going to follow him over to Mixer. Then we have Ninja, likewise, having the same type of issue. He was paid a lot of money to move over to Mixer. We know that because just on Twitch, he had an enormous amount of subscribers, and subscribers on Twitch are paid. So, unlike YouTube, where you can subscribe and just watch the videos for free, you can follow on Twitch, but if you subscribe, you're paying like three to five bucks a month. So, he had an enormous amount of subscribers. He was making at least a million dollars a month doing his thing on Twitch. So, we know that Microsoft paid him an enormous amount of money to move over to Mixer. The issue is not many of his viewers followed. He was getting anywhere from 50,000 plus viewers at a time on Twitch. When we look at Mixer, right now he's streaming and he has 5,000 views. So what this shows me, these huge drop-off in viewership from one platform to the next, even when it's such an easy immigration from Twitch to Mixer, it's literally just a URL difference and it functions almost identically, it shows me a strong reluctancy from people to move from one platform to another. People get comfortable with YouTube, they get comfortable with their podcast service, and unless there's something they incredibly uniquely want to watch, they're not really going to move over to another platform. So that's something I would keep in mind. If you're looking at Spotify stock and you're thinking that the amount of viewers that watch Joe Rogan on YouTube and Apple Podcasts are going to follow him to Spotify, I think you're going to see the same type of fall off. 85% of people are just going to stick with the platforms that they like, and a small portion will follow them over to Spotify. To have an overwhelming migration to Spotify, they really need to have pretty much all the top podcasters, which would be really expensive to do. So uh, I'd keep that in mind with the investment aspect of it. Just in general terms, I am kind of disappointed to see him move over to Spotify, Uh, in terms of a consumer. I like the Joe Rogan podcast. I also like Spotify. I have a premium account, so it's not because I can't view it, but I think he's more influential when he's broadcasting to everybody. So having a move to Spotify, I think is going to lessen his overall influence. And I think that it's interesting to have people like him instead of just mainstream media. So it's a little bit disappointing from that perspective, but I don't blame Joe Rogan at all. He probably made a fortune with that transition. And with that in mind, Spotify, if you're still writing big paychecks, uh, you know my email. So let's let's get in touch. Okay, now moving on, I want to address one example this week of market timing frustration. These are people that have tried to time the market. It hasn't worked out, and they have regret and frustration, and they express it online. So this one is a anonymous post. Let me go ahead and read it. It says, Am I losing my mind for thinking this market is completely disconnected from reality? It seems like the bad news outweighs the good news 10 to 1. Yet any slightly positive news gets traded like it's from the oracles of God, and any bad news, no matter how dire, gets traded like it's already priced in. Will the markets ever reconnect with reality, and would that be the 1929 event? I'm on the bearish side of things, mainly because I can't find a logical argument to support the narrative that we are going back to 30k on the Dow in the second half of this year. Every fiber of my body is saying things are ridiculously overpriced at the moment, given the reality unfolding. I do believe absolutely that we will recover but I don't see a realistic scenario for that until next year. It's like conspiracy theories and rampant speculation have become the new truth. Maybe I've lost my mind, but nothing about any of this makes any sense. But that is the saying that markets can remain illogical longer than you can remain solvent, so I would say tread with some caution in either direction you are betting on. So this is obviously someone frustrated that the market is recovering right now. This is the position that trying to time downturns does. It puts you in very stressful, frustrating positions because if you sold out somewhere along the downturn, if we go to the Dow Jones here, we see this really big drop. It dropped 34%. Let's say that you sell out somewhere right here and you think that things are going to keep going down because we have all this bad news. Well, what happens is the market starts to recover. We see that it goes up nearly 30% increase of where it was. And if you're sitting in cash, you're seeing the market recover week after week and you're thinking, what do I do? The news is really bad. Do I buy in now at a higher price? I miss out on some of the recovery. Do I wait for the market to drop down again? Will it drop down again? What if it doesn't? What if it keeps recovering and I continue to hold cash while it keeps recovering? This puts you in a very difficult situation. So I can see the frustration here. Now, having said that, I want to address a couple specific parts of this comment. One, he says, I can't find a logical argument to support the narrative that we are going back to 30k on the Dow in the second half of this year. Okay, but is that why most people are are bullish? Is that why most people stay invested? Is because they think the Dow's going to hit 30k by the end of this year? I don't think so. I'm generally bullish. I'm invested. I have 90 plus thousand dollars in the market right now, and I don't have any belief that the Dow's going to hit 30k by the end of this year. That's definitely not the premise of my investments. So essentially, what he's saying is I can't find a logical argument to support a narrative that nobody's making. Nobody's making the narrative that the Dow's gonna hit 30K by the end of this year. If you ask most people that have remained long, ask them why they're invested, I don't think you're gonna hear many answers. I firmly believe the Dow's gonna hit 30K by the end of this year. I don't think that's the premise. They're invested for the long term because we're not worried about a recovery happening immediately. That's why we're invested right now. He also says, I do believe absolutely that we will recover, but I don't see a realistic scenario for that until next year. So he's saying he thinks the economy has a realistic scenario of recovering next year, and he's questioning why people might remain invested this year. I have the same premise: I think the economy will recover over the next couple of years that 's why I'm invested right now. I think that eventually we'll recover, and I'm okay suffering some short term volatility until that happens when the news is great and the economy's recovering. The prices are already going to reflect that. There's people that are getting ahead of that. They're trying to buy now with the assumption that things might recover in the future. Most of the time I see these posts with people really frustrated about the market going up and down. It seems like they all have very short term views. I obviously have a very long term view on this. The reason that I stay invested is because I think eventually the stock market will hit new highs. It will hit new record highs. I don't know when the recovery in the stock market will happen. No clue. No idea. But what I do know is if I stay invested, when it eventually does happen, which is my thesis, I think it will happen eventually, I'll be invested during it. So I don't have to worry about when it happens. As long as it does happen sometime in the next five, 10 years, I'll be there invested for when it happens. So the the thought process is completely different. When you're looking at posts like this, you're looking at people that are, are viewing things from a very short term perspective. When you have people that are bullish, they're usually looking at things from a very long-term perspective, so you see a lot of disconnect there. Okay, let's get to some emails, joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. The email address is joseph at show.com. The first one's from Atilio. He says, Hey Joseph, I've been following your channel for at least two months now, and I really enjoy your approach to investing combined with the very honest nature of your videos. I would love to get your insight on my current situation. I'm 24 years old. I have a decent job where I could realistically move out of my parents' house in the foreseeable future. I have no debt whatsoever. I attended community college, and I'm currently paying for online classes in my spare time to progress in my current field. And I just recently inherited $60,000. My grandparents had set up a fund for me in 1995 that has slowly grown to that amount with the intention of using it to pay for college tuition, which today would also mean a considerable student loan debt. Having not gone to university, I can understand why my parents did not inform me of this until they thought that I could handle this kind of lump sum all at once. So, needless to say, this requires some serious consideration. I don't necessarily know the nature of the investments in the account, but it probably goes without saying that the money can be repurposed to better fit the current financial landscape. I try to practice not living beyond your means, so until my paycheck increases, I'm going to pretend this money is inaccessible and not touch it unless it's being invested. I have money saved already. I can pull for emergencies or massive upfront payments. Okay, Talia. well, first of all, you have some awesome grandparents. Having them start a fund right when you were born, about 25 years ago, and growing that to $60,000, that doesn't happen by mistake. That's very intentional. Your, your grandparents obviously thought about this. They were dedicated to it, and they carefully grew this amount of money over the 25 years so that you have the opportunity to make your life a little bit easier. And I'm sure your grandparents could have used this money. They could have used it to go on vacations or to buy nicer vehicles or to do whatever could have benefited them, but they're very selfless giving people. And so they'd rather bless their grandchildren and make their life easier than doing it themselves. So you have some awesome grandparents. I'm sure you know that. But the last thing that you want to do is use the money in an irresponsible way, squander any of it, uh, use it in an ungrateful, dumb way. That is the last thing that you want to do. Looking at it from your grandparents' perspective. I'm sure when they're setting this up and they're making this plan to give this amount of money to their grandchildren, the thing that they're wanting to do is set their grandchildren up for a good future. They're wanting you to have security. They're wanting you to have education and good job prospects. They want you to have a stable family and make your life a little bit easier. The last thing that they want you to do is use the money in dumb ways, to squander it, use it irresponsibly. Now, having said that, we can talk about a few ideas. First of all, I wouldn't discredit what the current investments are right now. I would take a look at them and see what the money's actually invested in. Because you say the $60,000 is in a brokerage account, but you don't know exactly what it's invested in. I would take a look at it. It might be invested in really good things. It sounds like your grandparents are thoughtful, good stewards over money. They're, They're thoughtful, considerate people. They probably have it invested in decent things. So I wouldn't discredit that. The best course of action might be just to leave it for the time being In the current investments it's in. And if you need to transfer that money over to a brokerage you control, you can do that through an account transfer where it won't sell any of those securities. So I would take a look at that, see what it's invested in. You might just keep it. That might be the easiest solution for now. Uh, Other options, if you want to move it or if the money's in cash for some reason, um, there's a couple different thought processes here. The one that I like is dollar cost averaging like the different post I was reading, some people are frustrated because they have money in cash and the market goes up. That happens all the time. We don't know what's going to happen. We know that we're going through a recession right now, but the stock market and the economy, they, they go together sometimes and other times they don't. So it's difficult to see what to do. I don't like timing the market. I do like dollar cost averaging. If you have something like $60,000, an option that you might consider is something where you do bulk investments on an incremental basis. So for instance, you might put $10,000 into the stock market, and you do that every quarter. So every three months, you throw $10,000 in. So $60,000, that spreads out your investments over a year and a half timeline. And that's a pretty easy way of doing it. If after two quarters, the news is really bad and the market goes down, that's fine. You have $40,000 left. If after three quarters, that's fine. You have $30,000 left, right? It just spreads it out. It spreads out the risk. It makes it so that you don't feel so bad about timing the market one way or another. You have this lump sum. Put it in $10,000 every three months. Don't worry about timing the market. So that would be my other suggestion. And as far as picking individual companies, I would hold off on that with your grandparents' inheritance. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. So if I inherited $60,000 from my grandparents, uh, I would feel more comfortable picking individual stocks with my own money, the money I've worked for, and I'm betting on these different companies and I've done my research and analysis on them, I'm okay if I lose money that I earned. If I have money from my grandparents, I just feel a little bit better about putting that into broad market ETFs, having it more just under somebody else's control, under the general economy, under the index, right? I have that money in the index, and then I'm a little bit more disconnected from it. If the stock market goes down and I lose money with it, it doesn't feel like I squandered my grandparents' money. So that's what I would do with it. I would use your grandparents' money to put into more of a ETF, broad market mix of of bonds and equities, and I would sit it there. I would set it and forget it, let it grow over the decades. And with my money, that's where I would do more of the individual conviction buys of companies that I really like, because that way, if I, I make a bad pick and I lose a lot of money, I know I didn't lose my grandparents' inheritance. So there's a couple different options there for you to think about. Pick and move says, what do you think about the growing number of billionaires in the world though? All the wealth is going to the tip top and that leaves less and less for everyone else, doesn't it? Okay, pick and move. That is true. There's a lot more billionaires right now in the US than there was a hundred years ago, 200 years ago. The number of billionaires increases pretty steadily and this becomes a big focal point, especially with politics. It gets a lot of attention. So we have around 600 plus billionaires in the US right now, give or take, the number goes up and down as a lot of it's tied to companies and companies go up and down in value, as you might know if you invest in them. But this is what happens. We have about 600 billionaires. That's a small amount of people in a country of 300 million. 600 is a small amount that have an enormous amount of wealth. So you're looking at people like Jeff Bezos, like Mark Zuckerberg, that they literally have billions of dollars. And you look at your checking account and you go, Well, I have like 600 bucks in my checking account. So you're looking at this and seeing the astronomical inequality between the two. And that gets a lot of focus. That gets a lot of attention. It's something that people can easily connect to is seeing the difference between that amount of wealth. Now, I don't think it should get quite as much attention. I don't think it's as much of a problem as people make it out to be. So if billionaires are a problem, that's the premise, that too many billionaires exist, we shouldn't have billionaires because they're the problem. Let's go ahead and go back to a time where there was a lot less billionaires. Let's go back to where we only have one billionaire, just one. So we have, what, 600 times less billionaires, right? We're going from 600 to one. The first confirmed billionaire was John D. Rockefeller. So this was about in 1916. So let's go ahead, just for fun, and look at the work conditions of the typical American during a time period where there is only one billionaire, not the 600 plus that we have today. So let's go back to 1920. Uh, This is a write-up from The Atlantic where they did a little study on this and showed the the typical working condition. They said, Americans suffered worse working conditions in just about every way. Work for men was more widespread, more dangerous, worse paid, and well, just more annoying. According to the 1920 census, 85% of men over 14 were in the labor force, compared with 69% for men over 16 today. It was the dawn of scientific management with factory workers introduced to a brand new office colleague, the time clock. Manufacturing workers averaged 55 hours of work per week, 10% more than self-reported averages today, and the jobs are more dangerous with fatality rates of 61 deaths per 100,000 workers. The workplace was about 30 times more dangerous than it is today. So there you go. That was the typical work environment for men in the 1920s when there was just one billionaire, the very first one. So I would ask you, pick and roll, when would you rather live? During 1920, when this was a typical work environment, or right now, where we have 600-plus billionaires? What time period would you rather live? I think the answer is obvious. Everybody would rather live right now because the standard of living is drastically higher. We've grown our overall capital, our overall GDP. We've grown our economy, and our standard of living has gone up substantially. So I don't think the focus should be so much on inequality of net worth between one person and another as as the standard of living inequality. If you were to measure standards of living, I think it's far closer me to Jeff Bezos than our net worth. Our standards of living are pretty close. Overall, that's pretty close. Our net worths are drastically different. So I think the focus should be on standards of living. Everybody's going to prefer that even more than they prefer inequality. If you go back even 100 years before 1920 to the 1800s or 1700s, there was even less inequality. We could go back to where there was no millionaires, right? So we take away a time where there's not only no billionaires, now there's no millionaires. The standard of living's terrible. Nobody would want to live during that time period. You're having to farm all day just to have food to survive. So overall, I think there's way too much of a focus on net worth inequality, where the focus should be on standard of living inequality. I think overall, the focus should be your standards of living and the inequality between that. If we live in a wealthy nation, people, generally speaking, should have a great standard of living. They should be taken care of. And I think that we do that for the most part. Over 100 years, we've come a long ways with the, the general standard of livings for Americans. So that's where the focus should be. I'm not convinced that going in, and shredding the net worth of people like Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and anybody that starts these huge companies, I don't think that that would really raise my standard of living all that much. I don't think there's much evidence for it. You can look at other countries that have far less wealth inequality, and their standard of living really isn't better. In fact, most places where there's no wealth inequality, their standard of living isn't good at all. So, Uh, Unless I find convincing evidence that that would really improve things for everybody, I don't think it's the route to go. I think generally speaking, looking at growing the economy across the board, raising the standard of living should be the focus rather than trying to even out the net worth of everybody. I think that's kind of a a losing game. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and end it there. I appreciate all of you for listening. I will talk to you next episode.